0: Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt.
0: We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships.
1: If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place.
0: Here we go. Happy Memorial Day, Sherry.
1: Thanks. Happy Memorial Day to you. I
0: love Memorial Day. It's one of my favorite holidays. definitely my favorite of the, like you know the monday holidays the the many that exist where you just get a 3 day weekend morale day is my favorite
1: i'm a little torn by those 3 day weekend sort of things because for a long time i worked at a bank many years i worked in a bank
0: well you must love the 3 day weekend no holidays.
1: it sucked because back then everybody <laughs> this was still when people went into the banks and did not do online banking yes and so we would be super busy
0: on and then the and Friday we, before,
1: and the Tuesday after, and the Tuesday all after. the catching up that had to be done, like businesses that were open that couldn't make their deposits on Saturday or Monday. So I had like because I I kind of worked the business transaction line with like lots oh. of cash and checks when I was a teller line, and then so I was you, so that was hard. So it you was have mixed up.
0: mixed emotions about that. Yeah, catching well, up
1: a five day week and a four day week.
0: Well, That's, I I love this particular one because I. I, my, probably, I've said this on the podcast before, probably my greatest regret is that I never served my country um, in military or other tangential service related way and we have a lot of people that are in our programs and that listen to us that are in the military and are in government service and um, I think of Memorial Day not just as a day to honor and really be reverent of those who've given their life for our country which is a huge deal to me but also just other people who have served and continue to serve and it just it just puts all of that in my mind and reminds me that I have the freedom to like sit across from you and talk into this microphone um, because of the sacrifice of others and I think it's a really really big deal and so I just wanted to spend a second um being reverent about Memorial Day because I love it so much.
1: That's really, really awesome of you.
0: And, you know, I like to grill out, and it's the unofficial start to summer. When we were growing up, Sherry in Indiana, the Memorial Day was like when the pools opened, right? Yeah. Is it still when the pools open? Yes. The like even neighborhood here. parks and rec pools yeah. and stuff.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. So yep. summers even are, here are like. You know, local amusement park that has a water park. The water park opens in, you know, Memorial Day. And, yeah. and there's like one, that's whole water world thing that's opens Memorial Day. Our
0: so. school let out time has gotten jacked over the years because of climate related decisions that have been made, but it used to be school was out on Memorial Day too. And now it's not anymore. Does that bum you out? No. Or do you like it that school's out at Memorial Day?
1: I'm only just giving you this look, if people could see, is because I have vehemently argued with you that my school did not get out always at Memorial Day. When you were Day. growing up? Yeah. Oh. I had like I have shown you my graduation announcements of when. like. Oh. It depended. It depended on how many snow days we had. Because they would extend the school year a little bit if the snow days, but
0: you're passionate about this. I
1: know it's just I feel like this is one of those. things. I just got
0: a little little Norman Rockwell like. Yeah, you just always think that it all is Memorial Day, Day, and then there's Labor Day, and you start again, and and in between is just. And I can also argue when
1: it starts for like the beginning of the school year, since my birthday was right. (laughs) Always like right at the beginning of the school year.
0: Well, I think it's great that we're already arguing about timing (laughs) issues because that's going to tie right into the listener question. Which I have a feeling the listener question is going to become the whole episode for this one. This is something that not only this listener, but other people have asked us to talk about. And I've hesitated because the content is stuff that we've talked about in chunks lots of different times. But what we've been asked to do is put it in a sequential order and talk about things in relation to time and Sherry this relates to you know I was a good kid growing up I went to Sunday school every Sunday and I learned the Bible stories right but then I took a religion class in college for like a humanities credit or something and it was the first time after you know year after year Sunday after Sunday hearing these Bible stories it was the first time that I had somebody put them in sequential order for me and explain you know, how these things transpired and how this thing led to this thing. And I was like, whoa, this changes everything. I just thought these were rogue, random stories that took place that were completely unrelated. I mean, I knew that Easter followed, you know, Christmas because you got to be born before you can <laughs> die. I mean, I got, I knew that, but I'm like, so then there's this he was Noah born guy. And then he died. And then there's this Abraham guy. And I don't know who's older or who's first and where's Moses fit in. And, hmm. uh,. So I,
1: and maybe, maybe maybe I didn't
0: listen very well. Well, very you well.
1: also told me one point that your parents um, went to Greek Orthodox church, and at oh, that time they
0: spoke they, Greek,
1: so you didn't learn anything. I didn't learn anything. It was all Greek to me. And apparently, that's exactly what happened.
0: But the, you know, uh, it, it, it is interesting to learn about how um, you know the it started as one. Christian church and then split into Catholic and Orthodox and then from there the Protestant churches emerged. So all that history stuff. Boy, we are probably boring listeners to death, especially the ones that aren't Christian. Sorry everybody. Um, But putting things in sequence is helpful. Here's our listener question and if you would like to send in a listener question, we would like to answer it. You can send it to Matt at soberandunashamed.com and and you will get our real life answer not a clinical answer because we're not clinical people as if the first six minutes couldn't tell you that Uh, listener question you talk about resentment processing trust building and intimacy but can you please provide a timeline as the spouse of an alcoholic in early sobriety what can I expect and when it's a great question yeah. Don't you think, Sherry?
1: It is. And I think that a timeline is kind of hard to put together in a way because it depends on the individuals.
0: Yeah. It's, it's not, yeah. It's and how much damage is
1: done and the negotiations. Well, the other, but I mean, there's a, an outline. I don't know if we can plop
0: some time to it. It's also difficult for us because we have acknowledged that we did everything wrong. Like, the reason we're sharing what we've learned is because we did it in the wrong order. We did it all bass-ackwards, and we wasted a bunch of time that could otherwise be used fruitfully if somebody were to sit down with intention and work through the process of recovery, both individual and spousal and relationship. But, so yeah, so if it took us four years, hopefully you can do it in two. So the timeline is... A bit challenged, but I, you know, I was taking some notes thinking about this question, and I think there's some stuff that we can say. Mm -hmm. Like, for instance, I think if we talk about early sobriety as being the first year of sobriety, there's definitely some universalisms in there. Like that the drinker is going to be selfish. Um, They're working on brain chemistry repair. They have to learn all the things get their program set up, figure out what their community is gonna be, what that's gonna look like. For me, I every night after work I read by myself in the corner, you know, don't anybody disturb, Dad. It was just like when I was drinking and you and I started to drink too much and you'd be like, oh God, leave him alone. Who knows what kind of mood he's in. So whether I was drinking in active addiction or I was reading in early sobriety, I was still like Oh, let him selfishly sit off in the corner and do his thing while the family exists without him. Is that how it felt, Sherry?
1: Yeah, sometimes. um, Yeah, I kind of felt like that. um, You know, sometimes I would think, God, it would have been easier had you gone to any sort of meetings. um, Just because then I wouldn't have had, then your presence wouldn't have been there and it wouldn't have been a reminder that you're still not there.
0: Yeah. Another thing in So early sobriety is is just inherently selfish, just like active addiction is. Really hard to get around that. Another thing that is a big recommendation of ours for early sobriety, and it's one of the reasons why it took me 10 years to get sober. I had 10 years of sober periods and relapses and sober periods and relapses. And one of the reasons is because I thought I was too big for my britches. I thought Every time I'd get sober, I'm like, I can handle this. I I have good willpower. I'm smart. I'm determined. Nothing can get in my way. And then I would experience something that either made me relapse and drink in the moment, or more often than that, I would get through the event, the social occasion, the thing, whatever it was, the drinking thing, And I wouldn't drink in the moment, but a couple days later I would feel so bad about myself because I was the only one at that party who couldn't drink and I would woe as me into relapse and I would drink a few days later. So one of the biggest kind of learning experiences that we can share that is related to timeline is that first year, you should clear that social calendar to the extent that you possibly can. So there are I think there were like two family occasions that we did not feel like we could cross off the list. Like Christmas, Christmas with the family would be a good example. Mm -hmm. Even though lots of people would be drinking and drinking lots, large quantities and festively and, you know, drinking eggnog, drinking that once a year kind of thing that's related to the holiday. Eggnog
1: with alcohol in it. Yeah. Not all eggnog has alcohol.
0: Correct. Yes. Hard eggnog or Or like mimosas, mimosas in the
1: morning.
0: Even though morning. it was all that kind of festive we still participated. We didn't, I didn't drink. But we felt like that would be too much to cross that off the list. But neighborhood parties we just avoided them. I know You've shared, Sherry, that you would get invited to things and not even tell me we were invited so that I wouldn't feel tempted. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that, that happened more often than not the last few years of your drinking. Well, I didn't so when I was drinking,
0: you didn't want me there because you yeah. didn't know what version of me you would get. Right. But even when I was sober, you didn't want me to go because you didn't want me to feel tempted and relaxed. Well,
1: and that first year, I definitely... Like, the couple of events that we were invited to... Um, you know, I think I shared one of them with you and another one I didn't just because we only got been...
0: invited to two things a whole year.
1: Well, I mean, I'm sure there are other things, but like I'm thinking like invitations, like real on invitations, you know, like mass events. Like one was a Halloween party, it was kind of this open house, come and go. I think we actually got like off of the list after you were sober because we never responded either yay or nay because I just deleted the evite. I didn't even, you know, and they would come up, and I would just, because I didn't want to have, like, our name saying yes or no, you know, because I did that a couple times, and then I just stopped. Um, Yeah, I might, I don't know, I think because also we had just kind of gotten so busy that it was, that we weren't being invited as much because I just kept kind of neglecting. Imitations.
0: So tell me what it was like from your perspective. We're not going to this thing because I'm a drunk. And in early sobriety, we're not going so I won't be tempted. And you just don't want to deal with... I mean, one of the things that we've learned that I didn't know back then was how much anxiety and nervous system dysregulation it would create in you to go to a big booze fest with your sober husband who was barely sober. Was it a relief for you to to clear our social calendar from the first year of my sobriety or was it disappointing and like almost resentful like oh I would like to go and see my friends and do this thing but I can't because my husband's a drunk.
1: Well for me like I just feel like I kind of explained like I stopped doing that in the later years of your drinking because I didn't want to deal with that so if I could, if you did it, But now it, I'm
0: sober and you're right, still doing but,
1: it But yeah so I kind of what I'm trying to say is I kind of got used to not doing things. So it was it was habit. It was
0: So what you're suggesting is that I listen to you and answer my when you answer my questions and not ask you the same questions. Not interrupt again. just
1: like you're doing now. So I had already gotten to this point in my life where I did not want to do things. It was not fun to go out anymore. It was not fun to take that adventure and go see friends just to see if you were gonna turn into an asshole later on or be up all night or mad that I wasn't partying like that. So the times, sometimes even, I'm sure, like I thought, well, it would be fun. And if I wanted to see my friends, I would just make plans without you, without them. Because there were some things I did without you um, in that first year of sobriety, nothing major. But yeah, I had already didn't have a social calendar for the last several years of drinking. So it, it didn't create any resentment It just, because at that point I was already feeling sort of isolated and alone. So it was like comfortable because that's what I knew.
0: Yeah. Interesting. Well, let me ask you this. Did you feel resentful because you couldn't go to things in that first year? Oh, (laughs) gosh. I'm sorry.
1: (laughs) Matt was telling me just before we started recording the podcast. He's a little off right now. My brain is. He's used a lot of his brain power. today because we're Uh, recording later in the day shut down
0: mode Um, so going all all the way around the calendar without uh, socializing to the great extent that you can that's important, doing individual work I think is really important in early sobriety, I mean had we recognized early on that you were going to need therapy as well and recovery work and you were going to need to uh, deal with the trauma that you had experienced from my drinking, starting that in the first year would have been great Couples work, not so much. Yeah, Waste of money, waste of time. That first year of sobriety is selfish for the drinker. And both parties, drinker and spouse, can do lots of individual work. But in our humble non-clinical opinion, it's a waste of money to start working on the relationship at that point.
1: And for me, I don't feel like even as soon as you... Like, for example, if you would have come to me and said, I'm going to stop drinking, this is it. This bad incident happened and I'm done.
0: Yeah.
1: Okay? I don't think I would have, like, rushed right out there to go find somebody and start seeing somebody. Because I feel like therapy I would have... Wise. Therapy-wise. Sorry, not... Not dating. Just, <laughs> not dating. Um, I would have wanted to hold on and seen a little bit, like, what your game plan was. Like, what's going on? What's happening? Yes, I think getting your own therapist for the loved one is necessary. But I don't know if it's immediate necessary... I think you need to kind of settle in and see what the plan is. Maybe it's something like, you know, like how we offer Shout and Echoes. Maybe it's something you investigate together. Not that you're, you're working together as a couple, but, but maybe it's in the same program. program. See what's available. And and you'll have to do some research. Um, so I kind of feel like well, that's a little... I don't know, just because... I know that a relapse can happen, and and being working with a therapist or in a group can be very helpful to the partners if that happens, but maybe you just need to kind of center yourself a little bit and see what kind of help you need.
0: Yeah, just preliminary, but I think you you made a really important point. You don't know what's coming your way. We meet a lot of Spouses of alcoholics who who really early in sobriety like my spouse is two weeks sober and I can't seem to let my guard down. You shouldn't be letting your guard down two weeks in that whole first year that whole early sobriety period in again our humble opinion the spouse the loved one of the alcoholic who has spent years creating boundaries learning how to detach putting up defense systems, figuring out how to deal. You don't want to tear that wall down. Keep that wall up because you don't know if the relapse is coming. You have, you don't have an earthly clue what's coming. And so staying guarded and keeping your protection system up, uh, you, you got to protect yourself and your kids and just you know dropping all your defenses two weeks into sobriety because the person sounds committed Big mistake.
1: Yeah. Well, maybe, and maybe that was just for me as I needed. I mean, we didn't know later on, but I'm looking back, I'm thinking, I don't even know if I would have known where to start until I kind of had a little bit of time that you've shown that sobriety was going to be something you wanted to. You
0: didn't know where at. to start as it relates to your recovery. Yeah. But you knew, or maybe you didn't like book learning know. But you instinctively knew you weren't gonna come open arms running back right. back to me, like, oh thank God you're sober for two weeks.
1: Yeah, by the time My prayers like,
0: are answered, like you were having none of that.
1: Yeah, I think by the time um we uh realized that I needed the help was when we when I realized that and you realized because you were the brunt of it, but my anger because there had been a lot of fear and a lot of like imbalance of power that had happened in the dynamic of our relationship, so that was one of the things that I felt like I needed to find the therapist that had, you know, addiction um, specialization. specialization and sort of that like or were
0: you we looking for a therapist that had an addiction?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, like had a, I couldn't think of the other word. So
0: yeah, knew what they were talking about. Yeah, could help. Specializing in our specific.
1: And, Specializing in that. yeah. yeah.
0: Let's talk year two, Sherry. I think, personally, I think resentment processing can really come to the forefront in year two. That's when we can start our weekly meetings, if we haven't already started them. I mean, I think you and I were doing our weekly meetings back when I was still actively drinking. But they really, I think, become fruitful in year two as you start to get to the point where you can revisit the past without the past re-traumatizing you, both sides of the fence. So you start to get to the point where you can talk about uh, how bad it was for you Sherry when I was drinking and because I'm a full year sober, I'm into year two I can start to hear that without getting defensive which is, you can't resentment process when the drinker's defensive
1: And that depends, and you know, I know you're giving a timeline, but we're also going to mention like how well the path to sobriety and healing and discovery of what the alcoholic needs to do. And maybe there's an underlying cause. I mean, if they're still, if they're a dry drunk and they're still in the shame cycle or in the blame cycle, whatever you want to call it, like there's a lot of bad things that can be still going on. And maybe after that first year of sobriety, they still haven't you know, completely healed, and and let's just throw in, if they transferred the addiction, Ugh. their brain isn't recovered.
0: Well, okay, let's be specific. If they transferred it to
1: marijuana, yeah,
0: marijuana, pornography, or, yeah, uh, another illicit substance.
1: Yeah, then their brain isn't ready to accept that. They may, if they're smoking pot, they may be more chill but they're still not going to be able to hear the resentments in the way that their brain needs to hear them and react and respond yeah. and understand.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and, and we've covered resentment processing a, a lot on a lot of different episodes uh, because it's a core foundational, super important part of the recovery process, both for the individuals and for the relationship. So, I think that's probably enough detail to go into on what that actually is, but it can start and be really fruitful, I think, in year two. Also, year two is when we had our conversation with our kids. One of the things that I've learned, and I know now in retrospect, you know, when I first got sober, obviously you go from drinking every... I went from drinking every day to not drinking every day so I had a little bit of explaining to do with our kids right away. And I I know the way I represented myself was pretty know-it-all-ish. Well, let me tell you kids about addiction. Let me tell you what dad's been battling, and let me tell you how brain chemistry works, and let me tell you what am I I'm gonna do going forward. I don't think there was necessarily anything wrong with sharing what I had learned, but just like you had been traumatized, the kids had too. So for this jackass to come to them who had made so many days like walking on eggshells because you never know what you're going to get, and who had made asking for permission to stay out late or to do this thing with their friends or just whatever, had made that all so tenuous and unpredictable. For that person who, you know, who who created this environment, to come to them and say, sit down, let me explain how this all works to you. Mm-hmm. I think that really, that's hard. That's very know-it-all-ish. Even if I've done the research and even if I do know more than they do, I should have had more contrition. But they were, you know, they were genuinely afraid of me. Not afraid of me physically, but they were afraid of, you know... um uh, counteracting what I said or challenging what I had said, so they just nodded their heads and listened. Mm-hmm. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So whatever you can do to not know it all, it when it comes to talking to your kids, just tap the brakes on the details of addiction. Um, that's stuff that it's important for kids to know, and I would definitely recommend going there eventually. But when you're just you've just finished being the asshole that they're tiptoeing around around, and you're in early sobriety so you're still, you know, maybe they're still tiptoeing around you, that's a tough time to be preaching about addiction. So that's why I think it's a good fit for year two, having that conversation.
1: And age appropriate, in that first year you can say, hey, you know, I know that I've really messed up in drinking and I'm going to really work on not doing that anymore because my behavior's been bad. Give them an idea of what's going on. Um, and then look at it from year two, and kind of have more of a sit down, and maybe it's not just being arrogant know it all in one one sitting, and and also haven't when you are talking to the kids, I think you need again age appropriate, but let them know what questions they have. I feel like if there had been more of an open conversation, like what kind of questions do you have about it? What kind of you know what things you know, like we had, like, what hurt you, what upset you, you know, let it be them kind of guiding it because they still have, that's part of their healing process. Yeah. And then seeing you have a reaction that was not counteracting or dismissing what they're saying, that made them more open to have conversations down the road.
0: Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Now, I feel like they can talk about anything with me, almost anything with me. I'm still kind of I don't know. I'm I'm kind of a lot some, a lot of times and so I'm sure there's stuff that they don't want to talk to me about. But for the most part, mm-hmm. I feel like I'm relatively safe for the kids, you think? Yes. A little hesitation just to make me wonder what the hell you no. were hesitating about. Thank you. Yes, yeah, sometimes
1: good. you can still be a lot. Yeah. Um, but I think you're choosing to be a much better listener and a and uh and less of the advice giver
0: so what was it like, Sherry, when our social calendar went to zero and you didn't, <laughs> you didn't I already to... was
1: living then, and I dreaded every social event.
0: okay, so we've got there. our year one stuff that we talked about. we've got our year two stuff that we talked about, resentment processing, weekly meetings, conversations with the kids. Then you enter this kind of mid-range of recovery. Those first two years are hard, hard. But the roadmap it can be, I think, relatively, relatively clear. And if you're saying, "Oh my God, um, that's as far as you get in two years," I think that's kind of as far as you get in two years. Even if you're You're better at it than you and I, and even if you listen to podcasts where chuckleheads like us talk about it, and you get all kinds of tips. first two years are hard.
1: And maybe, you know, you're empty nesters, your kids are older, maybe you can really kind of push through and speed up. Maybe there wasn't so much damage done. Maybe the drinking um, time frame was a bit shorter Mm -hmm. and less intense and less traumatic. So maybe things can... And it was a really great relationship before the addiction. So maybe there can be, you know, I mean, I'm not saying that it doesn't happen. I mean, I think we have a few people we know that that's been a little bit of the situation because it was such a great relationship to begin with. So it was just, we can say they were trying to recover back to what they had, but you know, if there's like a lot of trauma in a short time frame, that might be hard, but if it's less traumatic and you kind of jump on the situation, early on perhaps.
0: So if we say on average or for the most part that's what you can expect for the first two years. It's not a ton of progress but it is what it is. I think we can leave it at that. And then now you're entering some longer term sobriety. You're over two years and you know you aren't over the hump. It isn't for sure yet. But you're getting in to some areas where you start to make some significant progress. And the first one that I want to mention is understanding attraction. This was huge for me. It didn't happen at the end of two years. It happened, I don't know, half an hour ago for me. It took me forever to figure this out. But it's really, really important. And what I mean by that is, what I mean by understanding attraction is, I knew that you loved me. I knew that you always loved me. But I learned that you didn't like me for a long time. And I had always, in the hierarchy of emotional connection, I had always put love above like. And I didn't realize until a little while ago that like is actually above love because you can love somebody and they can remain your family and you can care whether they live or die and you can want them to not get a debilitating, life-threatening disease. But at the same time as you love them in that way, you can not like them very much and not want to spend time with them and not want to be around them on a daily basis. And that's what happened with us, and I didn't realize it. And I certainly if someone had said, Oh, Sherry doesn't like you very much, I'd have said, Yeah, but she loves me and thought everything's fine. It's not fine. Love love does not trump like. So that you know, that realization is the kind of thing that can happen, I think, after a couple of years of individual recovery where in addition to the individual work you're maybe working on some resentments, but you know, you I think having much higher hopes than that is difficult but then you, st- you start to, as the drinker, understand how much damage you've done, understand that you've done real serious trauma now we've talked a lot recently about blaming the alcohol, so I'm not trying to spin any per- people in early sobriety into the shame cycle, that's not what I'm intending here but whether it's the alcohol, the addict as a third person uh, however you want to look at that the disease has done serious capital T trauma damage. And so a lot of us want to say, oh, it wasn't that bad. It wasn't that bad. I didn't lose my job. I didn't get any legal problems. Our family's still intact. And, you know, why won't you drop all of your defenses and come running back to me with open arms? Well, this is why. There was serious, serious trauma done because when the person that you've bonded your life to and you've mutually agreed you will protect each other, when that person becomes the most dangerous person in your life, which is what happens in active alcoholism, coming back from that's hard. And it's even harder when you don't acknowledge that it's going to be hard. So somewhere, like I said, after that two-year mark, when you start to really, without without reshaming yourself, can, can come to grips with the fact that this is serious, this is bad I did, you know, the result of my actions are bad, bad things that's helpful in the moving forward process, would you agree with that?
1: I would agree with that that acknowledgement and that I mean there is a level of accountability that goes along with that acknowledgement of the trauma that was caused in the relationship and on your partner
0: yeah Yeah, so the the biggest kind of action items in this longer term sobriety period, recovery period, to me is try to create peace and consistency. I think a lot of us, when we're drinking, we want to have these party times and exciting times. And then as individuals in sobriety, we have to battle this period of loneliness and boredom that's something you have to battle that that's tempting to you know makes you want to drink you get cravings when you're bored and you're lonely and so your cure for that sometimes in your head is i want my life to be exciting again how can i make my life exciting but really i think the real solution is to learn how to embrace peace get it become emotionally mature enough that you can just sit and 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 do the mundane things, wash the dishes, talk to the kids about how their day at school went, mow the lawn, go to bed early, watch a little TV, you know, and have this peaceful, contented life. Because your spouse, if you're the drinker, the sherry in this scenario, has some serious nervous system repair to do and needs to come off of that constantly living in fight or flight mode. They need to just enjoy serenity. And so, if you're going to enjoy serenity, I have to be part of creating serenity. Mm -hmm. What's your reaction to that? You're being serene and peaceful over there.
1: Are you thinking I'm bored not listening? Um, Yes, I think, like, because there's been so much chaos with the drinking, it's really hard for a lot of people to understand that. The mundane, the boring, the peaceful, the quiet, the simplicity, however you want to put it, the calmness is what we crave. Mm-hmm. We don't want anything big and exciting. we don't we just want calm consistency, good experiences, not great, not fantastic, not whoop, you know, woo me off my feet, we just want a normal life. Like, because when you're starting to get into longer-term sobriety, I want to look at you and see how you're going to handle a situation of the normal ups and downs of life. Yeah. Like, you know, say one of the teenagers gets into a car wreck, a fender bender. Nobody's really hurt, just some damage to the cars. I'm looking at you to see how you, as the addict, that is trying recovery is going to handle that and if you blow up and you're flipping out about it that's not peaceful yeah that's not making that's not you being consistent i understand that it's it's traumatic there's worry there's money there's cost there's repair whatever but to see how you're going to react that's really what's going to be important because you've avoided normal life and normal life things or overreacted or underreacted because of alcohol now we want to see who you really are yeah and see if you're somebody we can like and get along with and deal with and have a have a marriage and a relationship again
0: yeah well and along those lines i think one of the other mentalities the other mindsets that as the former drinker who's got a couple of years of sobriety One of the shifts that had to take place for me that ties into all of this, okay, she wants peaceful, she wants contented, she doesn't want wild and exciting. Okay, got it, thanks. She doesn't like me very much. She might love me, but she doesn't like me very much. Okay, got to work on that. One of the mindset shifts for me was to really try to win you back and look at every day as an opportunity to kind of woo you. And that might sound awful to a lot of people. You might think, God, I already got married. Isn't that part over? Like, why do I have to keep trying? I don't want to try. I want to walk around in my underwear and fart all day. All right, I get that. But I think it's exciting to try to be the man that I know will be someone that you will like. Whether that is you walk in the room and I put down my phone and I stop reading that email. And I stop responding to that person and I give you my undivided attention. Mm-hmm. That's, that is, I know for you, that is attractive. Or I spend some time, you know, one-on-one time with each of our kids or, or spend time with the kids together doing something that's not instructional. It's not me teaching them or it's not them handing me tools while I'm trying to fix something. It's fun. It's fun for them. It's fun for me. You seeing that. These are the kinds of things that, I, if I do those, I know they're things that you find attractive. And so I don't look at it as arduous and grueling that I've got to keep trying to win you back over and over again. I actually think it's kind of fun. And I'm not so sure that it's not how it's supposed to be. Well, I
1: say you can't just, you know, even in a healthy, normal relationship,
0: if you can call anything normal.
1: You can't like, oh, I've won this person, and now they're married to me, and now we have all these legal and financial ties and familial ties. Now I can just be a slob. I can just be gross. No, you happens can't a lot, do that. Don't you? I think it happens a lot. And I mean, yes, there are shifts and changes. You know, there's jokes about as we become moms, we come out of our business clothes, which nobody wears anymore, and put on the sweatpants. There are some things that happen, but you can't be a jerk because you had been a jerk for so long. And yeah, you do need to win back your spouse. And, but that, that courting again, part of it, that's something that should be happening in a healthy marriage because you don't want to be somebody the person doesn't want to be with. Yeah. You don't want to be disgusting.
0: Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Um, I think, you know, tying in with this or with what we talked about earlier about how when I, as when I was the drinker, I was, you know, we bonded ourselves together in this mutual protection pact and then I become the most dangerous person uh, that you encounter. The opposite needs to be true in this longer term sobriety period. I need to go from being dangerous to be a safe place and do that with consistency. The same consistency I bring to the table of trying to create, um, you know, kind of peaceful, uh, you know, not exciting, just normalcy. I also need to bring that to the word safety. I need to never yell at you. And I mean, never is hard to, you know, maybe not never, but almost never yell and never Raise my voice and always be a safe place for you to bring, you know, issues to. This is where I think we can really start to blame the alcohol. That can become a big part of the, 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 the process, the things that we're attempting to do. Um, and huge in this mid-range period is for me to acknowledge that none of this is your fault, Sherry. Because a lot of people, a lot of people get sober, myself included, and say, yeah, I needed to get sober. I was drinking too much, but she was still kind of a bitch. And she had her stuff. When You know, Sherry, when are you going to work on your stuff? And I think it's really important that we get to the point where I'm recognizing if you have any stuff, it was stuff that was created by my drinking. You don't have any, you're not naturally a stuff-carrying person. You're not a bad, nasty person. And the better job i can do of not just saying it but believing it that if if you react negatively to something it's because something has hurt you not because you're a bad person or an evil person mm-hmm. you don't have any stuff none of this is your fault that's really really important
1: yeah and i mean a lot of us partners of alcoholics have baggage that we brought into the relationship with us a lot of us have married um into an alcoholic situation maybe it wasn't apparent at the time because we were normalized by it in our upbringing by having a parent who was an alcoholic so we're already like we're prone to that so we do some i'm i'm not just trying to counter what you said but we do sometimes bring that into our relationships but again it's because the alcohol did that to us not because we did it to ourselves. I
0: just the point is you're not inherent you're not inherently evil people. You're yeah. not you're not yeah, if, if if you react badly it's cause you're hurt, not because you're mean. Yeah. And so you don't have stuff you need to fix. You need compassion and empathy for not only what you went through with my drinking, but anything that you went through before that. And so blaming you for bad behavior just a really, really bad idea.
1: Yeah, and I mean, they might just be habits that you learned, you know, inherited, sort of, by your upbringing. Yeah. Um. I know that was some of the stuff I had to touch on when I was in therapy. That generational trauma yeah. that carries through. And what I saw coming up with, you know, an alcoholic father. Um, he wasn't in the home full time, but that... I mean, I'm not saying... You do need to address it yeah. when you are looking for um, help, but don't feel like you have to own it and wear it and make amends again because it's not your fault and this is where blaming the alcohol. I know I didn't like a lot of the times when you would say things like that to me when we were getting to this point, you know, you, you, I can just remember like around year three or four, you were like, you are a victim of alcohol too. And I was like, I am not a victim of anything like I was trying to take ownership of my, my nasty reactions because I felt like I needed to be accountable for some things and because and I, I, it made me feel terrible looking back the way that I had treated you a lot of situations um, because I think, well, if I had treated him differently, maybe it wouldn't have happened this way or played out this way. I wasn't able to recognize that the alcohol had changed me to do those things. Mm-hmm. So I had to address some of that, and I had to own that, that a little bit, that yes, I was a victim of alcohol in many different levels.
0: Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's in that intermediate, all of what we've just talked about is that intermediate sobriety piece. More than two years, but you're not fully over the hump yet. the last piece, the last thing to come back, I believe, in relationship recovery from alcoholism is trust and intimacy. And I think those two are intertwined. I don't think you have to build trust so that you can have intimacy. I likewise don't think that you have to rush headlong into intimacy and let that create trust. I think those two things develop together. There's definitely a chicken or the egg and the answer is yes. And so it takes active effort. Both parties, both sides of the relationship Uh, need to be working to rebuild trust again with consistency with showing up with being trustworthy right with not being dangerous being the safe person in the relationship but also with having those intimate physical and emotional moments where you push through and you touch each other and you uh, have intimate physical moments uh, where you are you know exploring each other and connecting with each other physically connecting with each other and if that is not a comfort zone and i expect that it isn't i would encourage that you you try to push through that now i'm not talking about wifely duty sex i'm not talking about oh you know he's waited long enough you got to give it up no it needs to be a mutual thing one thing we've talked about when we talk about intimacy We've talked about the responsive arousal of typically females, not always, but this is very typical with females. You're no longer going to look at your spouse and be like, "Ooh, ooh, I want to get me some of that. If you're the female, typically you have to be touched. You have to get into it before you start to want to be into it. And so making that a possibility you know, Pushing through, trying to relax, trying to be open to it is really difficult and really important because if you get there, then you create this vulnerability, this physical vulnerability that builds, the trust builds off of. What do you think?
1: Well, I think you, before you even get to that point of like kind of pushing forward, you have to have a really healthy level of. Trust and connection and liking your partner, I think, to kind of move forward with that. That's definitely and you had why. To, I... And you have to, yeah. And you have to want to do it. And yes, like you said, that touch response thing has to—that happens, especially for a lot of females. Um, so you have, so that is something you have to like really work towards and build towards, and and you have to have that consistent positive behavior from your partner before that builds the trust and also then you can allow yourself to feel safe to push forward through that if you were feeling unsafe with your you know
0: your spouse physically unsafe or emotionally this unsafe this person's going to fly off the handle the next time i bring a big bill from the dentist right. unsafe any of those unsafe or
1: if your body just isn't responding at the time you're trying to be intimate cuz sometimes that happens mm-hmm. Um, if your body isn't responding and not because you're trying to like be negative about it, um, because there could be medical issues and hormonal right. issues, but knowing that you can also say, no, that's too much or, yeah, you know, feel so, safe to say that. Yeah. Feel safe to say that. And that, that is, that one was really hard to kind of push through to allow my guard to let my guard down to make that happen. Yeah. And so being extra patient and extra sensitive to each other with the physical intimacy, I think, is really important. Yeah. And and having conversations about it.
0: But make no mistake about it. You can't wait for intimacy to come back once the trust is built, and you can't wait for trust to come back after you've been intimate. This these things have to go hand in hand. You have to it's like you know, you shuffle forward this way, and then you shuffle forward that way, and then maybe you have a backslide, and then you try to move forward again. It's not easy. It's really difficult. In fact, that's the thing I want to end on today, Sherry. You have a choice. It would make no mistake. Staying and rebuilding and repairing a, a relationship that has experienced addiction is harder than. Not to say it's easy to get a divorce. I'm not saying that at all. It could be harder it, than it's easier to start over. over with a fresh person who doesn't you don't have baggage with than it is to move through all these stages, the first year stuff, the second year stuff, the, the mid range stuff, and then the, the last piece of the puzzle, the trust and the intimacy. It's hard. It is hard work. So you have a choice and you have to make a choice. Is it worth it or not? And I am super excited to say that you chose to see it through and to work it out and to make it work. And probably, if you had known all these steps, you wouldn't have. Though, man, this is a lot of work. Yeah. If you well, didn't know I was going to take this long and be this hard.
1: Well, I was just going to throw in there. Even if you do move on out of the relationship onto someone else, you still there are still pieces that you have to heal and recover. Because you are carrying baggage into the relationship with past bad experiences Mm -hmm. that can... I mean, I carried in some past negative sexual experiences from before I met you that made our sex life a little more challenging in some ways.
0: Yes. And I think that's very... I don't think... I know statistically that's very typical, especially for females, to have bad sexual encounters in childhood and adolescence. Let me ask you this, Sherry. So, we've gotten to this point. You stuck it out. Maybe you didn't know how hard it was going to be, but you stuck it out anyway. Was it worth it?
1: Oh, yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to stop recording. Well, like I, it was going to be a little teaser for like next. A time. Like a cliffhanger. Like a cliffhanger. Yes.
0: Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources.
1: If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org.
0: If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org.
1: No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. Go to soberevolution.org.
0: For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.